Well, good morning. morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Philemon. We'll finish up the prison epistles this morning, Lord willing. Uh, In case you have trouble, if you blink, you'll miss the book. It's one page. Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, for those of you that know the old song, just before Hebrews. And at last, we'll actually be able to go verse by verse. For, the, for our visitors, we've been going through uh, the epistles as they fit into the book of Acts. And of course, uh, trying to do 1 Corinthians in one week is quite a challenge. But uh, Philemon is quite manageable for a, a, a one-day message. Uh, just as a quick uh, overview, we're going to do a two-part study this morning. We're going to look at the letter as it is, because it's a wonderful book as an example of how to appeal to another believer. How to appeal to another brother or another sister. Wonderful how Paul does this. And then we're going to take a second look at it and focus on a little jewel that's buried in the middle of it. I know many of you know what it is. Uh, It's a picture of probably one of the most major biblical doctrines uh, that we have. And it's a wonderful little jewel. You turn it and it has several facets, but that'll come second. So first, uh, just to uh, let you know what's going on as we uh, go through it now, Philemon is a believer in Colossae. Remember last week we looked at Colossians, the letter to that church. This letter accompanied that letter. Paul wrote two letters to be sent. Colossians was the book to the church, was the letter, excuse me, to the church at large there, which was read to the whole assembly. And in fact, if you remember, it was then later to be passed on to the church at Laodicea and read there as well. Philemon is a personal letter. It's written to a man named Philemon, one of the believers there. Philemon had a slave named Onesimus. Right away, let me tell you, Onesimus was almost certainly a white man. This isn't the United States in the 1860s. In these days, most of the slaves were white. They would basically commit themselves for a period of time to be a slave for someone until they could either earn their freedom or remain a slave for life. Anyway, uh, Onesimus, Philemon's slave, had run away. And uh, in the uh, works of providence, he ends up at Rome and he meets Paul while Paul is a prisoner there. Paul leads Onesimus, the slave, to Christ. And he becomes a changed man. And uh, is, realizes that one of the things he needs to do is go back and make restitution to his master as well as returning to him. And so... Oh, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. We don't know how, but perhaps Philemon asked Paul, could you write a letter? You know, <laughs> I'm going back. Uh, he's not going to be happy after what I did. Apparently, he stole some things from the content of the letter. And so uh, Paul writes this letter for Philemon to take back and to appeal to Philemon to receive Onesimus back. Uh, in good graces and forgive him for what he's done in fact to receive him back now as a brother okay so with that let's uh, get into it first of all verse one paul a prisoner of christ jesus and timothy our brother to philemon our beloved friend and fellow laborer now you remember we said that uh, often in the first verse of paul's letters there is a key to what he is doing later in the letter not always but quite often, and often it's what he calls himself. When he, when he says, starts off with Paul an apostle, he's generally in the letter asserting his authority, his authority as being appointed by the Lord Jesus as an apostle. 
speaking with authority uh we saw in philippians his emphasis on him being a slave of christ because that was the emphasis of the letter remember well here notice he could say an apostle of jesus christ you know philemon you do what i tell you but he's not going to do that he introduces himself simply as a prisoner of christ notice not a prisoner of rome by the way he sees past that he's a prisoner for the lord jesus uh, then we meet the family i we we believe that this is the family of philemon philemon first of all at the end of verse one then it says to the beloved aphia that's a woman's name probably his wife and archippus our fellow soldier probably their son archippus is also mentioned at the end of colossians and to the church in your house you brothers and sisters remember those days when we met in a home uh it was like that in the new testament too and it was wonderful so uh, philemon is a is a good strong brother a dear brother paul loves him dearly and that comes out now in the next verses listen how he addresses philemon grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ i thank my god making mention of you always in my prayers hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the lord jesus and toward all the saints that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in christ jesus for we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you brother isn't that good uh by the way this is the only place in paul's letters where he actually addresses uh the person directly as brother he doesn't do that in in either uh of the timothys or titus but he does here in five minutes it's a wonderful touch i think we do that and it's even more personal than saying you know brother charlie or brother don but to address them personally say brother there's an intimacy there and and paul is uh bringing that out reminding philemon of his of his love for him and their their nearness okay he he's uh he hasn't mentioned onesimus yet notice by the way okay that's a good way to start an appeal okay you know let's uh, talk about our things in common and our love for the lord okay now the appeal begins verse 8 therefore though i might be very bold in christ to command you what is fitting and he could as an apostle yet for love's sake i rather appeal to you being such a one as paul the aged and now also a prisoner of jesus christ okay so now philemon uh knows that paul's about to ask him something ask him to do something and um again notice how paul goes about it you know often uh i talked with a brother like about this the other day we uh, particularly as believers sometimes when we know there's an issue in someone's life we know the principle we know what they need to do so we just go right up and we say all right here here's the facts brother sister this is what you need to do right you ever done that i have paul doesn't do that he appeals first of all on the basis of their mutual love and their love for the lord and really painting a picture of himself there in the in the uh in the room with the chains remember you know is paul the aged paul the prisoner so i think philemon's heart's getting a little soft now don't you think by this point okay then finally verse 10 i appeal to you for my son onesimus whom i have begotten while in my chains ah 
the magic word. <laughs> he knows this name. Now, uh, I've said before, Greek is a wonderful language because they can shift the words around in the sentence any way they want. We don't, we can't do that. It doesn't make sense. But if a word is more important, they just put it to the beginning of the sentence. And here, it's unfortunate in the translation because Onesimus is the very last word in the, in the sentence. Paul builds to it. You see, it really reads this way. I appeal to you for my son, whom I have begotten while in my chains. Okay, so Philemon is really picturing this guy who really needs pity, you know, and, and mercy and support. And then he says, Onesimus, you see. Isn't that good? And just in the way Paul says it there, uh, think about how he builds to the name. First, he says, I appeal to you. He doesn't say, I command you. I don't say, I charge you. I appeal to you. I'm asking you for my sake. That's really what he's saying. It's the second time he said it, by the way, back in verse 9. Did you notice that? Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal. He's stressing that. Uh, we haven't got to the word Onesimus yet, because then he says, for my son. <laughs> wow, I think this is someone that Philemon would begin to look upon with kindness, huh? Paul's son. Oh, he says in the faith, of course. So uh, he knows that he led him to the Lord. This would touch a chord with Philemon, because from what's said later, we realize that Paul had earlier led Philemon to the Lord. And so there would also be a kinship there, you see. They both have the same spiritual father, whoever this is. Uh, and whom I have begotten in my chains. Wow. Another little note, a personal touch. And then, finally, the uh, bombshell, Onesimus. You wonder, uh, as Philemon received this letter, did he cooperate? I think he did. One of the best evidences, I believe, is right here. Because this was a personal letter. This was not a circular letter to the church. This was a personal letter from Paul to Philemon. Now, Philemon, on hearing that this is the guy that ran away and, and wronged him, could have just tore it up or burned it or something like that, you know, or put it aside and just said, forget it. But just the fact we have it preserved to this day, I believe Philemon, this was a precious letter to him, and I think he acted on it and did what Paul requested. Okay, uh, verse 11, we're going to miss something here in the English, unfortunately. He says, talking about Onesimus, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and me. What we're missing here is a play on words. Onesimus literally means profitable. And so Paul is saying by, by his name, he was unprofitable, but now he's living up to his name. And he's introducing a new subject here that should really speak to Philemon's heart because he says he is profitable to you and to me. And listen to what he goes on to say. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart. Wow. Whom I wished to keep with me that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. So we get a little insight here. During the time that Onesimus had become saved and spent time with Paul, he had helped Paul. He had served Paul. And I can just picture Onesimus, he's a servant, he's a slave, 
he would be the kind of guy who would just naturally probably attend to Paul's little personal comforts. And what a, what a delight that must have been to Paul to have someone like that around him, you know. I don't know about Luke or Timothy or any of the others. You know, we often would not even think of those kind of things. But Onesimus would have. And it comes out here in Paul's words. He doesn't want to part with him now. You know, it's been wonderful to have this guy around serving him, helping him. And so he tells Philemon, but I didn't want to take advantage of that. Uh, since he's your slave, I'm going to send him back. If I were Philemon and I heard that, and here is Onesimus coming back, I think I'd have a little tinge of sorrow, you know? I wish you'd stayed, (laughs) you know? But Paul wants to have a clear conscience, and so he sends him back. Uh, Actually, there are four more. I haven't counted the reasons uh, that Paul uses so far. There are so many here that should speak to Philemon's heart. There are at least four just in this little section we just read in verse 12 uh he says i am sending him back first of all paul is behind his return so that's a good reason right for philemon to receive him back this phrase my own heart wow that should commend him huh to paul's good keeping uh he says minister to me in my chains and so he really sees the value of onesimus that he he was a servant to paul I think that might make him look on him more kindly. And then, as I said, when Paul says, oh, I wish to keep with me, I think Philemon might even feel a little tinge of guilt there, you know, wishing he could have stayed longer and helped Paul. Well, Paul is not done with his persuasive arguments. In 15, he comes up with another one. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. That's good. Now, what he's saying is God meant this for good. He didn't make Philemon run away. But it's like uh, when Joseph said to his brothers, you know, after they were reunited, and his brothers were cruel to him. And he said, you meant it for evil, and they did, but God meant it for good. Isn't that a good way of looking at it? It doesn't mean that God caused their sin, but he used it for good. God, God can do that. Isn't that great? He can take even our intentions of evil. He'll turn it around for good. And that's what Paul is saying here. God has turned this uh, runaway issue for good in that Onesimus is, is now a believer. You know, who knows if he would have become one if he'd stayed in Colossae. He met me, he's saved now, and now you receive him back uh, forever. Uh, verse 16, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And uh, another persuasive uh sentence here verse 17 if then you count me as a partner receive him as you would me Uh, uh, what's philemon going to say well paul i don't count you as a partner you know (laughs) that's kind of a uh uh, a nullified if you know Uh, again remember when you study your bible the telecized words are not in the original Paul's statement is actually stronger than it is in the English. Those words, at, uh, as you would, or pardon me, you would, me, are not there. Literally, Paul says, receive him as me. See how much stronger that is? In other words, when you see Philemon, you're looking at me. That's what Paul's saying. Imagine that it's me standing there. How would you receive me? Receive him. Isn't that good? You feeling the pressure here? I, 
I think if I was Philemon, I'd write a quick letter back. Please forgive me, Paul, you know. But we're not done. Then Paul says, but if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. Wow. Here's Paul in prison. He's not making tents and hasn't been for over two years. Okay. He's living by faith, trusting in the Lord. And he's saying from that vantage point, I'll pay for whatever damages this man has done. Wow. Put that on my account. Isn't that great? Now how you feeling, Philemon? You know? I don't think Philemon sent him a bill, do you? No. I, Paul, and this is wonderful. At this point, uh, and it might have been through the whole letter, but we know certainly at this point, Paul picked up the pen. He says, I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Whoa. Yeah. I think that would have been very touching for Onesimus to unfold this letter and to see Paul's actual handwriting you know, maybe not quite straight because of the chains and the manacles that he would have been wearing as he wrote, you know. But to, to read that, I will repay. I think I would have really touched his heart. I'd be in tears by now, you know. Uh, and then he calls him brother again. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. In other words, by doing what I request. That's what he's saying. You think Philemon might want to refresh Paul's heart at this point? I do. And then finally, and this is a good way to close an appeal by saying, I have confidence that you're going to do it. He says, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. That's good. To express confidence, you know, don't end it with saying, well, you're probably not going to do it. You know, I know how you are. But real confidence. And I, I, I think Paul really believes this. He's not just saying, I think he believes that Philemon will genuinely do more than Paul has. And I think he did. Um, you know, it's a wonderful thing when someone obeys from a heart of love. They tend to do more than is required. It's only the stingy heart, the unfeeling, unloving heart that says, how little can I do to get away with and say I've obeyed? You know, I think I think Philemon had the heart of love that Paul is referring to. But meanwhile, he says in verse 22, also prepare a guest room for me. For I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. And this reflects his feelings expressed in Philippians where Paul believes, and historically it seems that way, that Paul was indeed released. Uh, It's wonderful, he says, prepare a guest room for me. Isn't that good? Uh, You know who would prepare that, by the way? It would be Onesimus, wouldn't it? You know, I think he might have had a little tender, loving care in that that act, don't you? We'd like to know whether or not Paul ever occupied that room. We know he was released, but we don't know if he ever made it to Colossae. Apparently, he had a few years of freedom before he was rearrested and executed not long after that. But I believe that until Paul uh, went to be with the Lord, that that room was sitting there waiting for him to come and visit. Wonderful little letter. He closes uh, with greetings in verses 23 through 25. But we're going to move on now to what I said is the doctrinal jewel here in the letter. You might have already guessed it if you don't already know. It's found here in verse 18. Paul says, but if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. Now, the biblical, the uh, theological word for this is imputation. uh, And we'll talk about what that is in a minute. It means to uh, charge to someone's account from another account. It's a biblical term. 
the, you see the word impute, by the way, a couple of times. David says it in Psalms, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, for example. But we're going to look at the particular usage here because it's a perfect picture of a major biblical doctrine. In fact, it's so major, it's how sinners get to heaven. It's that important. Uh, so let's look, at, first of all, at this word account. Paul says, put that on my account. Account. Most people here have at least one account. Did you know that? Um, there are two kinds of accounts now, and uh, Gary's going to come up to me afterwards and correct me on this, I'm sure. But uh, generally speaking, you, there are credit accounts, you know, an account where whatever's in there is good. It's a positive. For example, your savings account. Okay, right? You have an account number, you have a savings, you have a checking account number. It's a good thing. It's a positive. There's money in there. It's yours. Right? Okay? But then there are negative accounts. They're not so bad necessarily, but the point is uh, the items listed in your other accounts, for example, your PG&E account, your uh, phone bill account. You, each of us has an account, right? When you get the list at the end of the month, those are negatives because at the end it says, please pay this amount. Right? Okay, but they're necessary. I mean, you know, in this day and age, we need to have water, electricity, phones, and so on. But uh, it's very simple. That's We have the word today, an account. We have account numbers associated with them. That's what we're going to focus on here is these, uh, what are called debit accounts. Those are debit accounts. Because when you get it, although I have to say, once in a while, I've actually gotten uh, uh, um, a bill from pg e where it says, you owe nothing. This is a positive amount, you know, $1.20. But that's very rare. Generally, uh, for these accounts, you get a bill, and it's usually once a month. Uh, East Bay Mud is twice a month, uh, every other month. But um, these kind of accounts are records of act your activity for which a debt has been accrued, and there is a payment that must be made to settle that account. That makes sense, right? You, you understand that? Yeah? So, uh, and to, to support, when they ask for this amount of money, they support it by giving you, you know, the itemized list of your activities. Okay? For example, I get my PG&E bill. Uh, I have the uh, electrical reading, you know, before when the guy went around through my gate and looked up at the little meter there and wrote down the number. And then he came back a month later and wrote down the next number and it's bigger. And they subtract the two, and it says, you have used this many kilowatt hours at so many cents per kilowatt hour. And so many therms of gas and so on. And then at the bottom, there's a, an amount that I must pay. Okay? Isn't that wonderful, by the way? It could be the other way around. You know, we pay in advance. You know? You just send in a check for 300 bucks before you get any electricity or gas at all. And then once you hit that 300 bucks, the lights go out and the gas gets turned off. It's nice it works this way. Isn't it? You know, right now, we have all this electricity, these lights. This, this, this has not been paid for yet, okay? But it will be. It has to be. Okay, we get the idea. We all have accounts like this. East Bay Mud, uh, every two months. And you have, a, again, the reading of the water meter before the period began and, and right at the end of it. And the difference is, it determines how much you must pay to settle that account. 
I get uh, a, a MasterCard uh, bill once a month. Many of us have credit cards. I have one, a MasterCard. And I have this incredibly itemized list there right down to, you know, the place, the amount. You can even find out the time, you know, that you made the purchase. So that when they get to the end, they're supporting, you know, you, you owe this much. But the problem with visa bills, as you know, is they, they generally don't ask you to pay the full amount. They don't want you to, you know. I can't believe it. You know, uh, your bill is $2,000. You must pay at least $20. Well, of course, you know why. It's the interest, you know. That's, that's how they get rich. I, I pay my amount every month, by the way. I have not paid a penny of interest, and my wife can verify that, in uh, 30 years since we've had our, our uh, card. It's the Lord's money. And as little interest as I can pay, the better. Okay, what's this got to do with what we're talking about here? Well, you may not have one of the accounts we just talked about, but you do have an account with God. Every person here, and it's a debit account, okay? It's, it's not a positive, it's a negative. In fact, it's an account of sin. And it, and it works the same way. You sin now. You and I sin, and we go on sinning day after day, but we don't pay for it right now. That's good, too, by the way. <laughs> if we paid the first time we sinned, that'd be it. Lights are definitely out, Okay? Praise God. God works it this way. You only pay once, and it's once a lifetime. And it's the end of your life. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man once to die. And after this, you pay your account. He says the judgment. That's what the judgment is. It's settling that account that you and I have with God. So instead of using lights for free or getting water for free for a while, you know, in a sense, we could say we're sinning for free. We're getting away with it. But just like East Bay Mud or PG&E or, the, or Citibank or, or whatever, they're not going to let you keep doing that. Okay, The reason they're letting you do that is because they expect you eventually to pay for it. Now, of course, you know there are ways of getting around paying uh, other bills. You can declare a bankruptcy you know, or you can put on a false beard and leave town and, and start living someplace else. You can't do that with God. Okay, His account, and as, remember, you have an account just like I do is exact it's precise and it will be paid it must be paid god would be a liar if we didn't have to pay that account praise god it's like i said once a once a lifetime and it's at the end of the life okay well uh of course the thing about god's account the one we have with him is uh there's only one type of payment accepted you know they say in your bills don't send cash you know, you have to send a check or a, a registered check from the uh, bank or something. But uh, you can't um, you can't just send anything. You know, everybody knows what that is. That's a five hundred dollar bill. Why are you laughing? What does it say there? Five hundred. Okay. Now, let's say uh, I got my visa bill and it was $2,000. Well, I mean, I can do arithmetic. That means four of these, right? Could I mail these in and would they be happy? No? How about if I gave them a tip? Huh? No? 
Well, you see, it's that, it's that way with God. And he, uh, praise God, he's not vague about it. He's consistent from Genesis to Revelation. The uh, legal tender that pays for sin is eternal death. That makes it the most uh, expensive commodity in the universe. Wow. And it must be paid. I know you're sitting here, maybe somebody saying, what about my good works? You know, I'm a good person, basically. Doesn't that pay for anything? No, it's not the right payment type. It doesn't pay for sin. Only eternal death. God says that from beginning to end. The soul that sins will die, he says in Ezekiel. The wages of sin is death. In uh, Romans 1, you are storing up for yourself wrath. There's the picture. Our, our list is growing. Our, our account is expanding day by day. It gets bigger and bigger. That's what he's saying. This makes sense. God tells us all over the Bible, sin is not for free. Okay? It has to be paid for. We have to pay it. And uh, it's wonderful to me that God uh, doesn't leave any doubt about it. He actually describes the scene where we settle the account. And uh, I know you've been wondering what the props are for, so you're about to find out here. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. You see that, most of you? Yes? Okay. This is wonderful that God shows us the actual scene. Revelation 20, verse 11. John is writing here, he says, Then I saw a great white throne. And him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books, here they are, were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, I don't think you're going to find your name on the books here. I deliberately avoided that but you have one and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one according to his works Now, we don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but I have a feeling that angels are going to be helping out in this because they're all over the book of Revelation assisting God in the judgment of the world. Perhaps it'll be an angel who fetches the books one by one. And at some point, your name will come up and your book will be fetched. Now, notice it says books. Your PG&E bill is not a book. You know, my visa bill is not a book. Every once in a while, it uh, carries over to the beginning of a second page. But <clears throat> I do my visa bill once a month. 
God does our sin bill once in a lifetime. And so it's a book. And I believe, from what God says here, it's going to be very much like your PG&E bill or your visa bill. It's going to be a list of things that must be paid for. But it's very accurate. No exaggeration. Nothing left out. Nothing added. And as each name is called, I believe God will have the book brought forward. And imagine what it'll be like. You know, some people already have biographies written about them. I've read some of them. Well, this isn't going to exactly be a biography like that. Because remember, this is an account, a bill. And so, no, it's not a, a wonderful description of a hero. It's simply a list of things that must be paid for. Every one of them. Now, uh, we could look at some of the lists in the Bible. There's more than the Ten Commandments. There are a lot of lists of sins in the Bible. Mark 7, uh, Romans 1. And I believe that uh, every commission of every sin is going to be listed in your book and in mine. But uh, I have a feeling that the, the, the greatest, the, the, how can I put it? The item that's going to appear the most is a particular sin. I believe this because of how the Lord first uh, woke me up and got my attention. Many of you know how it happened. It was 1969, July. I was working at the Oakland Army Terminal and I happened to be riding in a golf cart. Uh, We used them to get around because it's such a big place. And I was going down one of the uh, side streets and a uh, 24-foot Matson van loaded with 38,000 pounds of freight came out from behind one of the warehouses through a stop sign and over me. And uh, I don't know what happened because I was knocked unconscious for a while, but when I woke up, there were tire marks on my shirt and I was, uh, my foot was severed, my right leg was pretty broken up. I should have been killed, but praise God I wasn't. But the thing I'll never forget, it's still so indelibly impressed on my memory, is this. Now, I wasn't raised in church. I didn't go to church. Uh, I didn't listen to sermons. But when I woke up on the pavement, the first thing that happened was, it was like somebody had taken a little snapshots of my life and just run them past me like that. You've heard that before, right? You know, your life passes before you. I, I know what that means. It was an eerie experience. And when it finished, deep down inside, all of a sudden, I realized that I will not be with God. Because I saw that when I looked at my life, he was not in it. And I knew that. I didn't need some preacher standing over me. It was very clear. I knew whoever God was, and I didn't know who that was, I had no business being with him and that whatever he had in store for me, if I had died, would have been just and right. You see, I had been breaking the first commandment when Jesus was asked by the lawyer, what's the greatest commandment? Remember that? Jesus told him, he said, the the greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, 
and all your strength. Well, I, <laughs> I had never done that, you see. In other words, I've been breaking that commandment 24 hours a day for my whole life. Maybe you can relate to this. I had no time for God, no room for God. I didn't want him in my life. And uh, I just knew deep down inside when I, when I came to there on the pavement that uh, I was not going to be with him, and that was right. I didn't know what he was going to do with me. Probably something bad, but I know I deserved it. And I believe that's, that's going to be all over the book, you know, everybody's book, that commandment. Besides the others, sexual immorality. I'm, I'm taking just the beginning of the list from Romans 1. Sexual immorality, acts, words, thoughts, every instance. You say, well, why every one? Well, if one sin went unpaid for, if somehow one slipped, God would be a liar. Imagine getting your visa bill and going in and saying, I don't want to pay that one and just crossing it out, you know, and deducting that amount from the bill. You couldn't do that. Covetousness, desiring something that's not yours or it's another's or expecting satisfaction. Malice, that's evil intention, thoughts of anger, thoughts of hatred of someone whom God loves. Strife, that's quarreling, heated words, cutting words, harmful words that can often scar for life. Deceit, lying, making someone else believe something that's a lie. That's the sin of the devil. We do it all the time. Gossip, speech designed to destroy a reputation. Unknown to them, of course. That's just a little taste of uh, the contents of these books. You say, but well, where are my good things? This, they'll be so negative. Remember, this is an account. And just like your visa bill, all God is interested in is the things that must be paid for. The sin. Okay? And to say, well, you need to put my good works in there too. That's, that's like offering God monopoly money. It's worse. It doesn't pay for sin. The one thing that pays for sin in God's book is eternal death. And every purchase must be accounted for and finally paid for. You know, when, the more you think about it, the more right it is. Isn't it? It says in Romans, talking about that day, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men's hearts. Jesus said it more plainly, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. And as you think about it, that's right. God has said, sin is serious, it must be paid for. And he's going to be just in letting everybody know what's happened and when and how. It's an open court, so all is just and right. And what a moment it'll be when your name is called and the book is brought forward. Imagine God reading through the book, maybe the Lord Jesus himself reading out the bill. And he turns to an angel after finishing the book. And this is the other book that was opened, they said. And he's going to say, is his name in the book of life? Is her name in the book of life? And there's going to be a pause and a silence as the angel opens and looks and says, it's not here, Lord. 
And in Revelation 20, he finishes this way. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And at that point, and not until then, the account is closed. The bill is paid. It's settled. God is justified. He is not a liar. He's been saying it all along. Now, the, the book, I don't think, is going to be stamped paid in full because it's still not. I think it'll say something like payment has begun. Okay. Turn back to Philemon now. You may be sitting there saying, wow, Rick, this is depressing. That's all bad news. That's right. And I wouldn't feel free to go on like that if I didn't know there was some good news to tell you. And it gets back to that word we talked about earlier, imputation, to put to the account of another. Remember what Paul wrote here. Verse 18, but if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. Here's the good news. Those are the words of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus said for you, if he has wronged you, speaking to God the Father in any way, put that on my account. I will pay it. Praise God. That's the love of Jesus. He saw your account in advance and said, put that on my account. Imagine... I don't think that's done with visa bills, is it? You know, imagine if you could uh, pick some guy that has in a card just like yours. Hey, you know, transfer all my stuff to his account, you know. You can't do that. First of all, the guy wouldn't be willing. Well, in this case, Jesus was willing. And so God did indeed impute, transfer your bill, your sins, my sins, to his account. It's the only way to escape payment for ourselves it's the good news it's the gospel it's biblical this is what it means when it says in isaiah 53 all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way but the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all you see he charged it to his account first peter 2:24, who himself bore our sins in his body on the cross there it is imputation isn't that great Man, praise God. And then, when God had done that, Jesus paid the full amount. Isaiah 53 again. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. First Peter again. Christ once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He settled the account. Now you say, well, that's wonderful. Everybody's going to heaven then. Well, no. It's not quite true. It's true that uh, your sins were put to his account on the cross, but they weren't removed from your account yet. And that will not happen until you come to him, until you trust Christ, until you believe on him, and not until then. Believing, that's the Bible word for having your account cleared. Believing on Jesus. You begin by coming to him, believing. What do you believe? Well, you believe that you're a helpless sinner 
with a big bill of sin that has to be paid and you have no help, no hope, you can't pay it. And you reach out with an empty hand and said, Lord, help me, save me. Those are the kind of people Jesus is interested in. And if you do that and turn from your sin and turn to Christ, boy, he's waiting with open arms. The savior of sinners. This shouldn't be too hard to understand. You know, imagine if, if you could, if you had a visa bill of uh, $500,000. It'd take me a while to pay that off. I don't know about you. Now imagine someone coming in and out of the kindness of their heart, writing a check for 500K, and uh, the next month you get your statement and it's blank because it's paid in full. Wouldn't that be wonderful? How would you feel toward that individual? <laughs> Pretty thankful, huh? Well, we're talking about more than paying $500,000 here. And so it's not a stretch of the imagination to say that uh, to come to Christ means to come to Lord Jesus and say, Lord, here's my life. Take it. I belong to you. You, you bought me. Paid in full. I said that uh, here in Philemon, this is a little jewel, and it is, because there's more to it than just the imputation of our sins to the account of Christ. If you come to Christ and you accept his payment of your account, there's another facet of the jewel, and we'll turn it and we'll read it here in verse 17. Because Paul had also said, if you remember, if then you count me as a partner, receive him as me. Isn't that wonderful? That's the other half of imputation. Whoever comes to Christ and, and accepts God's offer of imputing, transferring their sins to his son and having them paid in full, he turns around, empties our account, and puts in it the righteousness of Christ. And God receives us as his own son. How's that? It, it changes from a debit account to a credit account. Let me tell you, the amount in there is more than a million bucks. The righteousness of God is without price. You cannot buy it. You cannot earn it. Uh, you cannot get it by any other means except as a gift from God in exchange for trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's put wonderfully in 2 Corinthians this way. Both imputations are here. Listen to it. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. There's the first one. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. My sins imputed to him. His righteousness imputed to me. Now, I don't know about you, but that's the best news I've ever heard. Okay? You're not going to hear a greater story, a better deal than that. And right now, everybody has an account with God. There's no question about that. The question is, is your name in here? Your name gets in here by coming to Christ. And the wonderful thing is you say, well, what about my book? I don't think believers' books are going to be read there. You know why I think that? Because they're illegible. You can't read them. You open on it. You open it on every page of these three big words stamped on it, paid in full. You can't see the charges anymore. They're gone. Jesus removed them. Think about it. 
Is your name in the book of life? Or are you going to have to pay your own bill? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how we worship and praise and thank you this morning. As we so often sing, I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. Lord Jesus, thank you for paying my debt. You say in your word that we have been bought with a price. How true it is, Lord. You own us. And we who know you acknowledge afresh here this morning, Lord, we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to you. Paid in full. You own us lock, stock, and barrel. And Lord, we would have it no other way. And Lord, we cry out for anyone here who still has that bill hanging over their heads that they would not wait too long and become one of these, the small and the great, standing before the throne when it is too late. We pray they might come today and receive payment in full and have the righteousness of God charged to their account. But we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.